welcome to another episode of the Far Post podcast. My name is Marissa Lordanik. I'm very glad that you're back with us. I am joined, as I always am, by Sam Lewis, Anna Harrington, and Angela Christian Wilkes. And it's been a real bumper week of women's football. It was women's football weekend, but it's always women's football weekend here. So it's basically just a regular weekend. So let's start as we do with some you love to see it. Angela, what did you love to see this weekend? Yeah, this weekend I love to see um, Chloe Legazzo score for Bristol City playing against um, Tottenham. Um, it was a penalty, so she converted. Um, I think this Bristol City side, of uh, they've been through it the past couple of weeks. And so um, I'm not sure if everyone heard, but Tanya Oxtoby, um, it was announced that she tested positive for um, COVID and they also had the whole thing last week where um, five players in isolation. So, yeah, just a positive thing to see. There was also quite a funny moment as well shortly before that where she got, I think, smacked in the face by a limb and Alana Kennedy was like hesitantly offering moral support from the side. There's some funny photos out there of that. But the final score for that game was two all, so not a win for Bristol, but I think given the circumstances, um, a good performance from the side with, yeah, everything that's been going on. So, yeah, Legazo Pen, you love to see it. You really do love to see a Tilly's pen. It's just fills my, you know, heart with joy. Sam, what did you love to see this weekend? I mean, there were so many great goals this weekend. It was Women's Football Weekend, the FAWSL, two huge games, Manchester Derby, the London Derby. But the thing that I really loved to see this weekend was a very particular chip pass from Claire Emsley, uh, who played for Manchester, um, Melbourne City, sorry, in W League. Um, she sort of, it was the secondary assist, I guess you could say. It was this unbelievable outside of the foot, like reverse chip pass to send through her Everton teammate who then assisted for the goal. Um, and like everyone's talking about Chloe Kelly's goal, which was a similar sort of chip off the outside of the foot. But it, like Emsley absolutely a thousand percent meant the pass that she that she did. And it took out like two defenders and sent through her. T- it was just ridiculous. I really hope there's highlights out there because we need to share it, share it around um, and it's just great to see Claire Emsley doing really well as well. I feel like we haven't really talked about her enough when it comes to Scotland players doing well in England. So, yeah, Claire Emsley just being a baller. You love to see it. Absolutely love to see it. And then, Harrow, what did you love to see this weekend? I love to see um, Tobin Heath stepping up um, when the heat was on. It was um, in the Manchester derby. We all tuned in. <clears throat> Manchester City got out to an early 2-0 lead and... I guess it was a bit uncharacteristic from the the city defence, but um, Heath and Jackie Renan were actually pressuring their defence and Sam Mewis was involved and it's actually Lucy Bronze has ended up turning it over and Heath's just charged into the area and absolutely lashed it home. Like it's just got this amazing like bit of whip to it. It's, it's swung and it was just an absolutely unbeatable strike and the best thing was she got so fired up about it. Like, you know, grabbing the badge, screaming. Um, Sam was saying before, actually, when you listen to the audio, her voice just about breaks. That's how fired up she gets. And there have been so much press leading up to this derby because there's obviously four Americans involved as well as the whole, you know, two really good teams going out at Manchester United coming through. And to see a player like that just, I guess, grab the game by the scruff of the neck and just go, we're pulling this back on our terms. 
and uh, scoring a goal like that was just just fantastic. And it was a, an absolutely brilliant game. I'd thoroughly recommend catching the highlights if you haven't already. So, yeah, Tobin Heath stepping up and uh, doing Tobin Heath things. You love to see it. You do love to see it. And 1.3 million people love to see it. The um, highlight of the goal on the official FAWSL Twitter page has been viewed 1.3 million times, which is a stupid amount because I think the next best video in terms of views was like 84,000 and it was a video simply of Alex Morgan entering the pitch for warm-up. So says a lot about, I suppose, the American fans, but also just how good a goal that Tobin Heath goal was. So I suppose we will stick with Tobin Heath and with the Manchester Derby. As we said, it was 2-2, very much a game of two halves to uh, rifle out that old cliche. Samantha, what did you make of the game? It was great. I think it was probably the best game of the weekend. Um, And it was always going to shape up to be that way. I think after Manchester United started to really get a role, um, going, it, you know, this was sort of the matchup that I was most looking forward to because they had never beaten Manchester City. Um, I wrote last week uh, in my column about Manchester United that their first taste of FAWSL action was a loss to Manchester City. So it sort of felt like they were coming into this game with a little bit of a point to prove, not just to them, but also to their opponents. Um, and I mean, I think perhaps they carried a little bit of that intimidation into the first half as well. They didn't quite play mm. the way that Manchester United have come to, to be playing in the last couple of weeks in particular. But I feel like after that Tobin Heath goal, they started to really believe that they could do it. And they started to, to you know, pen back Manchester City to start to exploit um, their weaknesses, which we know they have because a number of other teams have been able to exploit them as well. Um, and started to play the, the kind of football that they've become known for, the kind of football that we love to watch them play. They became really dynamic. They pressed really high. Um, they have lots of really great combination of passing, all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, the, the second goal to tie it at two all was a bit scrappy, but I think it was the result of Manchester United really coming to it and being like, you know what, we can actually do this. And I think this was probably the, the sort of the last... Uh, the last game that people more generally watching the FAWSL perhaps needed to watch to really consider Manchester mm. United as a serious side. I think this was sort of the the last hurdle that they needed to get over in order to prove to people that they could be a top four, a top four team. I think when we talk about the big three, big three is now becoming a big four. I think this was the game to prove that. Yeah, I agree with you, Sam. I think um, the big moment for mine was, as I said, that you love to see it, the Tobin Heath goal. I think they were really got put in their shell. I don't think they would have expected City to score early because I think we've talked about it throughout this season that at times City can, I guess, be a little bit toothless. The first goal was obviously just a superb bit of skill from Chloe Kelly. Um, and I think United maybe just were going back into their shells a bit, were a little bit unsure of themselves. But I thought when you look at the the USWNT, they're so good at digging themselves out of holes or, you know, making the moments that you need to actually pull yourself out when you're struggling a bit. And I know Sam Mewis was one of the ones involved in the bit of play that turned it over, but Heath with um, Renan were actually doing the pressing and they did the hard work. And for Heath to just put her foot through it and just take the game by the scruff of the neck, I thought was exactly what they needed because we know they're very workmanlike and they – they do all the right things in terms of pressing and working hard, but it's easy to drop off in those things. When you lose a bit of confidence, you start thinking, oh, this is where I'm not going to win the ball back. Uh, you know, I drop back, you drop off, you drop off. But where a player just 
puts the foot to the accelerator and goes, oh, no, we're 2-0 we're down. We've got to do something here. I think that was when they started to pull themselves back into the game. And, yeah, I guess the next step for them is to go on and win that game because we know they beat Arsenal the other the other day, but I think the next thing is to take a result like the City one. You just go that extra step further and get the win. I'm still, I still think they need to win a trophy to fully put themselves in the um, – in the actual conversation, you've got to win something. It can be a Conti Cup. It can be an FA Cup. I think you need to get something or at the very least a new Champions League qualification, but I think preferably you need some silverware to just say we're in it now. But there's no reason why they can't go other way. I think once again we saw the question marks start to come out against about Manchester City. Where I, I'm just not convinced this season. I, I think it's probably worth a discussion amongst us and we'll talk about Rose Laval in a minute, but... We know they've been toothless at times, but I think they've also looked shaky in defence at times, and I'm just not sure that they've got all the pieces together right. And, yeah, just I'm just not entirely certain about them. It's a good point that you made about Tobin Heath, and I, I want to quickly say that I think when we talk about, or perhaps we'll talk about this in a future episode, about the impact of the Americans mm. on this league, I think Tobin Heath is an example of perhaps the, the the American who has had the greatest impact, not just in terms of scoring goals or assisting goals or, or being part of gameplay. But as mm. you say, Harris, she's brought this mentality to a Manchester United Winners. side, a winning mentality, right, and a, a real aggression, you know, and mm. a, a sort of an, like I hate to borrow the phrase, but a never-say-die attitude, right, which is exactly the kind of mindset that Manchester United have become known for. Something that really stood out for me and a lot of people commented on Casey Stoney um, and how mm. she performed on – performed, I suppose is the word, on the sideline or coached from the sideline. She is um, – and we'll definitely come back to this later on in the pod, but very um, calm, doesn't give anything away. I couldn't tell – like. Obviously, she wouldn't have been happy being 2-0 down at half time. But even when they were coming back, it was really hard to see where she was at. Um, and she's not a very vocal coach, which I think in a way attests to what she's doing off the pitch when you see how this Manchester United side have gelled mm-hmm. and how they work for each other. There must be something really strong happening culturally um, and something that she's saying, you know, in the change rooms and at training that is making them want to play for each other. And in such a quick amount of time as well, that, that clicking is that clicking is what we're saying. I don't know. We're seeing that clicking. That's the phrase I was looking for. Um, whereas, um, yeah, as Sam mentioned, the American additions to other teams, it's sort of t- taken a little while to see where they fit in and, um, yeah, what their role is going to be. Um, and, yeah, I think that that's a nice segue into the the Rose Lavelle question because there's a lot of other things that come into that in terms of, um, yeah, team selection and team talent available as well. It's great to see with Casey Stoney as well um, the fact that she's gone from being an England legend as a player to being such an impressive, I guess, presence as a manager. Because I'm sure there would have been no shortage of doubters looking at her. Maybe, I know she initially was involved in Phil Neville's backroom staff, but getting this job, there would have been no shortage of people going, oh, you know, as a, you know, England legend as a player, can she translate it as a coach? You know, has she done this? Has she done that? And she just looks so steely on the side. And I think Twitter was actually really getting around, like, she's got this long black coat and she just looks ready for business at any moment. And 
I just think there's that awesome sort of steely resolve about it that um, I'm sure she would have had as a player, but it's just really coming through on the sidelines as a coach. Um, I, I think she's just going to earn more and more respect. I know she was already sort of maybe put as a bit of a smoky in terms of the England job, but you'd have to think that down the track, if she does want to get into international football, if she keeps going in this current vein, then it's going to be pretty hard to write her off because, yeah, geez, I reckon she's done such an impressive job with this outfit already. And that was outfit being the team, not not just the black coat. <laughs> um, yeah, and it was interesting. She did have she did respond to some comments from Megan Rapino earlier this week about um, basically the the gist of um, Rapino's commentary was that it's 2020 and it's taken this long for Manchester United to have a women's team, and that's. Um, not a good thing, but Casey Stoney responded and obviously kept her cool and and kept it to the facts. And yeah, it has only been since 2018 that this Manchester United team have been in the the Women's Super League. And it's so impressive. Like I always love to go for the underdog, but I really will be paying attention to this side and seeing what they can do for the rest of the season, because it's so easy to get around them and so easy to rally around. Yeah. This, this side and this coach as well. So we talked about how impressive Casey Stoney was in terms of, I guess, rallying and using these players the right way at United. I guess, Sam, to turn our attention to the other bench, we have not seen much of Rose Lavelle this season. We didn't see her at all in this game. This is a player that's a just a, a special player in big games. We know she can unlock defences. We know she can pop up and score a goal at the right time. We know there's plenty of quality in that Manchester City midfield, but I don't think any of them have the star quality and poise and ability to take a game by the scruff of the neck like Rose Lavelle can. I mean, where does management come into this, do you reckon, Sam? I think it plays a big role. And Gareth Taylor, Manchester City's manager, uh, said earlier this week that he is new to this. You know, he was promoted to the women's side out of the City Academy. Please ignore all the noise out of my window. He is is managing like it. He's managing like he isn't quite set on what he wants or the kind of style or philosophy that he has. And I think this derby was the best illustration of that because he came up against a manager who absolutely does and who knows her players and who knows exactly what they want, they need to be doing for her and how they all fit into that puzzle that she has created for them. I don't think Taylor knows that. And I think that's why we're seeing so many weird decisions from him, um, not just in terms of Lavelle, but in terms of just like constant sort of midfield shifting, com- different combinations, different um, sorts of formations as well. Um, but, yeah, like you said, Harry, we've, and we've spoken about this in the past, like if you've got a, a player like Rose Lavelle on your team, that is a player who has an ability that is almost unlike anyone else on the planet. And she's a player that you need to, especially because she's still quite young, she's only 25, that if you are coming into a a setup like Taylor is and you're new and you're expecting to be there for a while, she is the kind of player at the right age with the kind of talent that you build something around. But he doesn't seem to be doing that. He seems to have all of these other kinds of players who you can build teams around and is trying to figure out which, which one or which combination of them to to be that anchor um and so I I guess that sort of uh, you know it extends perhaps 
in other ways to to Chelsea as well. You know, Chelsea are filled with all of these amazing players that you can build a team around. But perhaps the reason Emma Hayes uh, and Chelsea are perhaps doing a bit better is because Hayes knows how to manage that a bit better. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think, like, Lavelle being on the bench for this game in particular, I think, was, was criminal. Um, that Manchester United defence are excellent and they hadn't faced Lavelle before and she's exactly the kind of player who is as tricky and as clever um, as you would want a player to be to be surprising a defence like that. Um, so I think, yeah, I think Gareth Taylor made a really a, a bad decision in not, in not playing her at all. Also, surely Jackie Rennan's had like nightmares of Rose Lavelle strolling into the front third like for more than a year now. Exactly. Just make her her think there's a possibility that she might do something at some point. Just try and rattle them. Like, even if she doesn't have an influential game, she has the movement, she has the quality, she has the name. She has so many things that can at least intimidate a defence or a midfield. She just offers a point of difference. We know what Sam Mewis does. We know what Caroline Weir does. Like, great players. But when you've got someone like Lavelle who's so unpredictable, it's just what you need in a derby. And that was the thing that Tobin Heath brought for Manchester United. Yeah, I just thought it was a real loss not having your biggest, to use a cliche, X-factor player in the game that needs X-factor more than any other. Are we going to pen a, a detailed letter to Gareth saying, Sir, yes. we have a concern. <laughs> no, but we should, we should point This is our, our detailed letter. This is our detailed letter, Angela. He listens to the pod, right? Like this is us saying, Gareth, come on, man. At the very least, he should have a read of friend of the pod Amy Rusky's article about uh, getting the best out of Rose Lavelle that she that, that she wrote for Goal dot uh, com. So, yeah, get involved, play some Rose Lavelle. All right. So I suppose then the other really big clash, and we kind of alluded to Chelsea was their game against Arsenal. It was a one-one draw. Everything kind of happened in the final couple of minutes, goal wise. Angela, tell us your thoughts, feelings, opinions. With this game, um, obviously the big question that's floating around, especially after Arsenal's loss to Man U last week, is can they, you know, get it together in the big matches and get the wins against the big sides? Um, Yeah, and it really looked there that towards the end of the game that they had it in the bag with that really excellent late goal from Beth Mead and then just really awful own goal from, I mean, awful as in like heartbreaking own goal from um, Wobben Moy, which is really unfortunate, which ended up with it being a tie. Yeah, Angela, I actually agree with you completely that people wanted to see how Arsenal would respond. Um, they would have, I reckon, been stinging like all week after copying that Manchester United loss. So I think for them to come out really fired up, really make an impact and I guess really take the game up to Chelsea was would have been really important from a psychological sense more than anything. Obviously conceding the late goal would have been heartbreaking and they could easily have actually lost all three points in the end. But to actually go out there and take it up to a team that I think had looked probably arguably the most unstoppable of the of the contenders, but I guess Manchester United's recent form. I think that was really important for them in terms of saying we're not just a team that beats up on teams below us. We're a team that is actually right in the mix with the contenders. And it was interesting actually seeing a quote from Joe Montemuro that 
um, Optospore actually posted where he said that um, when I hear a team of the calibre of Chelsea saying, send it long and second ball, it interests me. Like basically saying Chelsea were, you know, playing the classic and it works with their structure, putting the ball over the top to their attackers and trying to, I guess, pinch goals. I, I like that little bit of spice to it. I thought it was really important for Arsenal to actually dictate the game and say we're going to play to our style. We're not going to be spooked by maybe copping a bad result. We can actually play up to the level. And the fact that it was a bit of a spicy clash, I think, um, was really important for them, even if they didn't, I guess, get the result. Yeah, it was a bit of an unstoppable force versus a movable object kind of game for the first 80 minutes, I think. You know, both of these sides... Um, almost cancelled each other out in a lot of ways. And I think, uh, yeah, I mean, that that was a good point made earlier about um, Arsenal sort of needing to be quite fired up after their loss against Manchester United and recognising that they do have weaknesses that they need to address. And I think Chelsea probably exposed one of them again, which is, I mean, I know Miedemar assisted the, the goal, but for the majority of the game, she really didn't do a whole lot. Um, I'm starting to wonder maybe if, if uh, defences in the FAWSL have, have figured out what Miedemar is all about and you know, Manchester United are perhaps uh, the ones to thank in that regard because the two turners absolutely blitzed her last week. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think up until the 80th minute, you know, we talk about game changers and that's why Vivian Miedemar is one of the best players on the planet because she does have, a, you know, she, she takes her moments to change a game. Um, and she's probably very lucky that she had someone as good as Beth Mead, you know, coming flying in from the wing mm. in order to tap home that that cross. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a weird game. It was almost boring, but it was it was it was sort of it was very tactical, and you could see that both sides were really grappling, particularly in and around midfield um, for dominance. There were some players who you'd usually expect to to dictate. Um, the sort of tempo of the game, not really on the ball that much. You know, G didn't really play as much of a role as she usually does. Even Kim Little, and I know Little's sort of coming back from injury, Mm -hmm. but a player as talented as her, um, and especially because she was quite quite influential when she came on for Arsenal against Man United um, sort of late in the game last week. You know, those kinds of players, when they don't have control over things, it, it almost feels like the team is a little bit directionless. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, it was a it was a very strange game, and I just I feel so bad for for Wub and Moy. Like, what a freakish goal to concede! Mm, you know, okay. that was just a ridiculous deflection off her shin. Uh, but she was named Player of the Match afterwards, so maybe that's some concession. You know what moment I reckon actually sums up such a weird game? The Caitlin Ford strike that smacked off the crossbar, yes, and then bounced down and hit the crossbar again, like. It was it, like it, it happened in some sort of alternate realm, you know, of physics where it just like none of the rules made any sort of sense. So I guess it's it's fitting that the both of them came away relatively undamaged with a point. Agree. And I think uh, Arsenal hopefully should get Steph Catley back in the next few weeks. I want to see Lydia Williams start, um, but I just think uh, Lids is such a leader. It'd be fantastic to see her slot in, get that opportunity. And from an entirely selfish Matilda's perspective, get some game time. Also, Sam, just on your points about Vivian Miedemar, coming for me a second week in a row, I can't believe this. (laughs) Uh, Genuinely, though, I think with this Arsenal side, it's fair to say that 
you can build a game around a player like Viv, but at the same time, she surely as a, a coach, you realise that that's going to happen at some point, that she's going to be marked out and therefore you have to come up with like a strategy to get around that. So I sort of, yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying, but I still think that, I don't know, I don't know what I'm saying. I think I'm just disagreeing with you, just vaguely. But with <laughs> I think the, it's okay for us to disagree. It's what friends do. I think, Angela, your point is actually really good there. You look at the goal that Arsenal scored and it comes from Miedema shifting out wide and using her pace, which is quite underrated, um, exploiting the defence and putting in a, just a brilliant ball um, for Beth Mead to slide home. Beth Mead can play nine. Caitlin Ford can play nine. It's that versatility thing that we've talked about with Sam Kerr in the past where if things aren't going well for you, if you're getting bullied off the ball playing as the traditional nine, use those valuable traits that you've got somewhere else and that's how they actually created a goal. So you think they've learned from that Manchester United performance and the fact that she got out wide, won the ball and actually drove and did something, not not what we talked about last week where she was dropping so deep and being in, I guess, not so valuable positions, but using her pace getting on the ball and just going and backing herself to beat players because she's going to beat most players. <laughs> she may as well back herself out there as well. So I think that's something that could definitely be valuable going forward. I think also maybe it's just a matter of just not underestimating the defences that you're coming up against and planning for that. Perhaps that's how um, Arsenal got caught out last week against Manchester United. They just thought that maybe their defence would be... Viv would be able to get around it a bit more easy and easily and she could not and did not so yeah so the rest of women's football weekend was fairly even truthfully we had Hayley Rouse's Everton draw 1-1 with Reading we had a couple of Aussies up against each other in uh Bristol City drawing 2-2 with Spurs. So we had Chloe score the pen, as mentioned. Alana Kennedy played Noella Mastro-Antonio, but she doesn't have the Roni, so that's a win in itself. And we had West Ham losing 1-0 to Brighton, unfortunately, but our Aussies were on the pitch. So game time is a good time. And then the last game there was Birmingham beating Aston Villa 1-0. So... That's kind of the last little bit of FAWSL chat we'll be doing for a little while. We've got Conti Cup coming up later this week and there's some very good-looking clashes there. We've got a Merseyside derby in Everton-Liverpool. We've got a North London derby in Arsenal-Tottenham and then another Manchester derby, United, coming up against City. I don't know if we can watch any of them, but if we can, we'll put those details up on Twitter so we can all enjoy some more women's football, but yeah, there's um international breaks, so there isn't any FAWSL until December, which is terrifying because this year's gone on forever and yet it's almost December. But that's not important. Anyway, so something a bit different from us. Um turning our attention to NWSL, we had the expansion draft for racing Louisville happen a couple of days ago. First things first, who actually can explain the expansion draft? Essentially, the the other the existing NWSL um, clubs were able to protect up to 11 players from that drafting process. Only two of them could be US Women's National Team players. Otherwise, fair game. 
But why? My question is why? Like why does this system exist? Because it's to allow the expansion teams to get players. It's an equalisation measure, I essentially. And the protection thing is also just so that one team doesn't get the guts ripped out of them. So by allowing all the teams to protect a certain number of players, it means that you're going to go far and wide to pick up players rather than say... I don't know, if you were, say if Portland was entering a team, it would make sense for them to rip all the players from Seattle because it's only a, like a four-hour drive like, and the players might be very good. Or you might want to rip all these players from NC Courage or from Chicago or teams that have been very good. Um, mm. So it's about protecting. It's a level of it is protecting the teams but also allowing them to have maximum access to talent. Because the idea is you can only protect so many players, especially US players, but also you just can't get like a huge core of your team just ripped out. So it's a, it's a way to, I guess, control expansion. Yeah. What if you want to go to race in Louisville? Oh, I imagine you'd have conversations with your club and the, yeah, you can have conversations with the club. And also there's going to be trading and stuff in the future. Pretty sure there is another trade period coming up and then obviously like the college draft as well. So it's by no means done. No. It's never-ending. The reason that I'm interested, right, is because it folds into this wider debate about which is the best league, right? Because one of the reasons that is often given by Americans for why the NWSL is the best league is because it's so even, because every team is capable of beating every other team in the league. And we saw that sort of happen at the uh, just sort of during the, the two weird like mini tournaments that the NWSL had this year. Um, where like Houston won one of them out of nowhere after coming off the back of like a series of of seasons in the NWSL that were pretty shit. Um, but uh, so that's uh, you know the, like the the sort of the stuff underneath that belief that the NWSL is the best league in the world because all the teams are capable of beating every other team. That is that that philosophy is built upon this uh, what this ex- expansion draft and the college draft offers. It's that, that equalisation measure, right? So that's sort of why I'm interested in it. I'm interested in the ramifications that that could have on other leagues as well, whether there are some things that you could take from that process, adapt it to different contexts, other kinds of leagues, because, again, we're having conversations about big threes, big fours, and how mm. we can make leagues like the FAWSL more competitive, how we can make leagues like the W League more competitive. You know, is it worth looking at the way that the US has built this system um, and finding ways to perhaps um, apply it to our own context. I think the interesting thing with that, Sam, is um, do you want the one thing that the NWSL and the W are going to have uh, caps and all these limitations around player movements? And I think one thing that we've seen that is a positive from the amount of pure spending that has happened in the FAWSL with those big teams is it's pure spending. It's investment in the women's game. It's paying to get good players in. It's saying we want to have the best women's team, so we will pay to get Rose Lavelle or Sam Mewis. We'll pay to get Rose Lavelle and not play her. That's how much we're going. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We'll get Tobin Heath, Kristen Press. Um, And I think the American system is so difficult because there are these restrictions around where players can go, where they can spend their career. I'd be so frustrated if I was, say, Tobin Heath, who's built her life up in Portland. I don't know. She might have actually agreed to to go to Louisville. But the idea that players that can be like 30 and then get their lives uprooted and have to to move because of the whims of the process, I think would be very frustrating for players. I think it comes down to 
forcing the league to lift up. You look at how Manchester United had to step up their game. They couldn't just get away with because you've seen Liverpool fall by the wayside, for example. Manchester United have gone the other way and said, we're going to invest and get our way up, have a good manager, build a good base, use our academy, bring in those extra players. Everton, concerted effort. West Ham haven't gone so well, but they have recruited some good internationals. Tottenham have picked up some good players, maybe not to the depth that, say, City and Arsenal and Chelsea have, but those teams already had a good base and have been investing for a long time and other teams just have to catch up. I mean, it's nice that the NWSL is equal, but I'd rather just see more investment come in everywhere. And as tough as it is to see some teams struggle, I still think you don't have to – you see the figures that go around in the men's game with the inequality and it's – they're extraordinary figures, like the millions and millions that get thrown around the transfer market. Even if you're getting into big figures in the women's game, those big figures are nothing like what's getting shelled out in the men's game. So I actually don't think it's so hard to quickly get to a point where you can be quite competitive. It'll t- it takes a couple of years, like look at Man United, to get to that point. But I think not to be full-blown capitalist, but just let them go for it. <laughs> like Invest, go hard. Let players play where they want to play. Give them the opportunity to do that. Make it an environment where players want to be and they're going to get better. But, yeah, it's, that's just me wanting to see the players get all the all the money and the perks and the facilities and everything that they deserve rather than maybe, I guess, being tied to a city or a club or whatever that they don't want to be in because of a drafting process. I think also in the WSL there's um, a bit more carrot and a bit more stick going on as well so if you perform well um I I can't remember the exact numbers but there is money um for example for just in the league itself if you place um relatively like first or in a higher position you do win money um or you receive additional funding and then there's also like the the possibility of relegation if you're not doing well Mm. I suppose on the other side of that it is difficult seeing like perhaps clubs that have like want to support women's football but don't necessarily have the big funding behind them like we've chatted amongst ourselves before about Bristol City um they the men's side are in the championship but they're not a big Premier League club but at the same time perhaps a club like Liverpool who have been relegated will face will if they are committed to women's football will put in the energy and the resources and the money to improve things and push things up again. So I don't know, there's social factors at play, which I think can be quite powerful as well, but I don't sort of a skeptic and I don't want to overly rely on those as being a strategy for seeing more investment. I think it's the clubs that do want to invest in women's football find a way um agreed and it's we're seeing really positive things at the moment and it's awesome and you're seeing and you're seeing the um clubs like Arsenal who have invested in women's football for a long time reaping the benefits now um and have for a long time as well so just a disclaimer as well I really don't understand the draft system um (laughs) but to me there's just like that, that same discomfort that Anna has mentioned about basically players being not having a lot of agency um, and yeah, don't you want your players at your side because you have excellent resources and they're happy to be there and they want to put in for this team? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a conundrum. We've seen it in the past. Kristen Press said, 
don't want to play at Houston and just went off to Sweden for a bit. Like, I think more players would do that. If you've got those options in Europe, why would you be tied to a place you don't necessarily want to live or play when you can probably get more money and you can play where you want to? I think it's going to be something that the NWSL really struggles with in years to come. And we've already seen it used as a bargaining chip. Like, I think it was... Mallory Pucci ended up playing, but she almost didn't go to Sky Blue initially because she wanted to end up in Portland. Um, we saw it with Hayley Mace when Sky Blue didn't have their act together, came over to the W League, then went over to Sweden, and then got, ended up getting traded to North Carolina. Like this, It's going to happen. Players are going to assert their rights, and I'm glad they're doing that because in the women's game especially, you've got a, you've got a short career, there's limited earnings. It's not like the, the millions and millions and millions you're making in the men's game. You may as well make the most of it. Just to add the Aussie flavour to it. Very interesting to see them pick up the rights to Alana Kennedy and Caitlin Ford. And I want to know your guys' thoughts on it. For mine, I can't see Caitlin Ford going back to the US. I just don't think the league suits her. I think she's been fantastic at Arsenal. It's the second time in the space of, what, a year and a bit, or maybe even less, that a club has gambled on Caitlin Ford coming back to the US. Orlando Pride did it when they traded for her rights. And now Louisville have done the same thing. Alana Kennedy, I'm less certain on. But what do you guys think? Can we see these players going back to the US? Are Louisville going to get bang for their buck? The reactions to that just made me laugh so much because I think a lot of people, and I think this too, are just like, she's not she's not coming back, love. <laughs> <laughs> it's not happening. So sorry about that. That was an atrocious accent. She's not going to um, you, bro. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't, I don't think Caitlin – when you're thriving like the way in the way that she is why would you go back to a league where there's a good chance you won't be yeah it's that same thing she's at a club surrounded by players that she enjoys playing with she's having a great time she's with a manager that like like sees her talent and knows how to use it and is like really supportive I just I don't see how she's gonna win by going back to the NWSL on a personal level and on a selfish Matilda's fan level as well it's hard to assess Alana Kennedy in terms of like which league she prefers based on her performances for Tottenham because we've discussed this in the past and we discussed it privately that she's perhaps not flourishing uh, in the side that she's in in the ways that we would like her to be flourishing, um, but she is seemingly enjoying herself. I would like to know whether she has been drafted as a defender or not. Uh for Louisville because if it's as a centre-back I think that would be lovely if she could go and get some minutes as a, as a CB um meaning again coming back to like a selfish Matilda's fan perspective just want to see her improve because that's most likely where she's going to be playing when she's playing for the Matildas um and I, yeah I, I'm just not entirely sold on her um in the midfield and that seems to be where she's going to stay at Spurs so yeah I don't know I but I again it comes back to player like a lot of this is about player autonomy and agency and they're making the best choice for themselves as well like they have lives outside of football that have to be taken into consideration so yeah I guess we'll just have to stay stay tuned um but yeah my bets are on neither of them going back and the other interesting fact is Alana Kennedy just signed, same with Emily Van Egmond, I think the one-year one loan deal to come over to the FAWSL. So whether they change clubs, whether they extend their deals, 
I think all that's going to be very interesting. It's very much a watch this space kind of thing. So there's also been some big things happening in our neck of the woods. We have uh, another update to seemingly the roller coaster ride that is the the Sheenix. Um, so we seem to have a pretty set in stone conclusion. It's not happening this season. Um, I suppose, Sam, can you give us kind of a short recap of what has actually happened regarding this team? Short? Possibly. All right. So uh, the the most recent, so when we left off last episode, we can have like a little sort of, you know, last week on the far post. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Sort of do like a recap. So last week, uh, Wellington Phoenix had submitted an application for a W League side, but the problem was that they um, they didn't anticipate Football Federation Australia not being lenient in terms of the international player rule. So Sheenix wanted to have a relaxed visa rules so that they could um, they could have more New Zealand players in their team in the same way that the A League team Wellington Phoenix have a number of New Zealanders who can play for them outside of the four plus one rule. Um, that applies to all other teams. So that was something that um, was put to FFA at the last minute and that was something that FFA said no to. So um, on top of that, uh, the the statements that FFA have given um, publicly in support of that decision is because this is, even though uh, we've bid for the Women's World Cup together, we are not part of, like a, a, a World Cup is very different from a domestic competition and effectively Australia is not going to play a part in their domestic talent pathway. We're not going to be giving up our own resources, our own time, our own coaches, our own facilities in order to develop your players. We're going to be developing our players first. That's our priority um, in accordance with the 11 principles, which they're very, very um, adamant on. And the the more that I've thought about it, to be honest, I think I agree. I, I you know, I, 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 I absolutely see a number of benefits to Wellington submitting a W League side, and I hope that they do eventually. But at the moment, and I think within the timeline that we've got of the three years leading up to the World Cup, we absolutely need to be maximising local domestic resources for domestic players. We need to be making sure that any expansion club that's in the W League is going to be giving minutes to Australian players because they're the ones who are who this league is for. Right, we are. We have a W League for Australian players. For this is our this is our pathway. And so, if a a, a club who doesn't have a W League team at the moment wants to be part of this league, they need to be on board with the big picture, which is that this league, it's it's purpose now. And I think we're all sort of we're we're quietly agreeing. It hasn't been formally sort of set, announced or whatever. Um, I don't know if it ever will, but this league is a development league now. Right, And so all of the strategic decisions that need to be made by FFA and by the clubs after uh, they transition to independence need to be made under that umbrella of development, under that philosophy. So through that lens, I think they've made the right decision um, in denying them the licence. Whether Wellington come back and say, okay, we'll accord with your rules, we'll only have the four plus one visa rule um, and still submit a team is yet to be 
known. Um, my my gut feeling is that they're not going to do that because they don't have the players because they probably come to this point with a, a with a squad and they expected because the A League team has these rules they expected the W League team to have the same rules as well. Um, but I think there are problems with that even in the A League side. You know I think perhaps what we're going to see is actually the A League rules are going to become stricter um, and not going to be applied to the W League side as people have anticipated. So. Yeah, and I mean, uh, Vince Regari at City Morning Herald um, wrote a, a, a very revealing article today about the um, sort of political machinations behind some of these moves as well. Um, there was suggestions that the New Zealand government would be funding the Wellington Phoenix to the tune of half a million dollars for um, effectively putting forward almost like a national team development like squad Um and perhaps that's the reason why Wellington was so adamant on trying to get it over the line now because they need money. They're desperate for money. And with $500,000 there, you know, you're going to try and do anything to get it. So, yeah, there seems to sort of be a whole bunch of stuff happening um, under the surface at the moment still. And I think whether uh, whether or if Wellington continues with their application within the parameters that FFA have given them is going to be a reflection on, I think, whether they actually give a shit about the W League or not. Just a couple of things to tie in. As you said, Sam, we've seen, I think just because it's connected, we've seen in the last week Claudia Bunge signed for Melbourne Victory and we've seen Paige Satchel sign for Canberra. Wouldn't have been surprised if those were two players that would have been lined up for a Wellington uh, W League team. One thing that is interesting, and I think the the various the actual Wellington situation has been talked a lot is when we talk about the opportunities for local players is I'd love to see give if this is such a strong position in terms of developing and giving opportunities to local players does that mean we can have the conversation again about expanding the league about getting this league longer about having a bigger season about having more opportunities I don't know if it's necessarily in terms of expansion with more teams coming into the league, which has been the topic this week, but we both spoke to Teresa Polias last week. We had the Teresa Polias love in in the How Good last week. And one thing she stressed was players need more games. I see it in the AFLW. I see it in the W League. Players at the moment get more games every year in their state league than they are in the top league. And if we're going to talk about opportunities for our local players, we need to see them get opportunities. Like the Wellington thing is that's an issue in its own regard. But if we're going to make these decisions based on opportunities for our young players, minutes for our young players, I think we need to be looking at, and I know money's a factor. I know there's so many factors of these things. We need to be looking at other steps we can take to ensure that we are maximising the minutes and the game time that these players are getting. Um, it's not entirely related to the Sheenix thing. But I think if we're going to talk about giving our players the best opportunity to thrive heading into 2023, we need players playing more than 12 games a season, 14 if they make finals. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think it's it's worth reiterating the money factor. Um, FFA in particular and the clubs don't have that much money mm. at the moment. And when we think about how much it costs to tack on another round, you know, it's it's a couple hundred thousand dollars for every added round. And so it's basically do we want more games, do we want more rounds, or do we want an expansion side? Because those two things are going to cost, you know, in and around the, the same amount of money to get up and running. So we need to you need to weigh up a lot of factors when it comes to that. And I think one of the things that, 
you know, again, this whole conversation has a caveat to it because we don't know how these clubs are going to make decisions post-unbundling. We don't know what they're going to do. We don't know whether they've had, whether the, the clubs who are already established in the W League have had a conversation with the Phoenix and said, actually, you know what, once we're separated from FFA, you can come in and you can bring your money and your new fan base and your new players and all that sort of stuff. I don't know whether this new um, sort of governance system that they're going to set up post-unbundling is going to allow them to have their visa rules relaxed. Are the clubs going to be allowed to make decisions like that or is FFA still going to have oversight over those kinds of things? So, like, it's, it's all sort of up in the air and I feel like it's, it's tough for us to um, conclude a lot because there are still so many moving parts. And we're in a post, well, not a post-COVID, currently an in-COVID world and we're going to move, you'd hope, at some point into a post-COVID landscape with football. And, you know, are we if we have a Wellington Phoenix team, are they going to be able to play in Wellington? You'd think that's the long-term hope is um, the impression you get. And what does that mean in terms of getting, you know, people to get around that team? Because I imagine it would be so difficult to support a Wellington team with so many New Zealand players, for example, that are based in Sydney, they're far away. It's, yeah, there's just so much to, to take into, into consideration with that. And I know I'm being probably a little bit like hopeful in terms of saying, oh, we'd, you'd love to see the league expanded and you'd love to see all these things happen. But yeah, it's a, it's a difficult, it's a difficult one. That's for sure. All right. So while we're in W League news, we've had a bumper crop of signings. Once again, Brisbane Raw has announced a just metric ton of players. We've got Emily Gilnick returning from Sweden. We've got Rosie Sutton moving to Raw as well. And then a whole bunch of uh, players that were in the MPLW Queensland. As mentioned, we had Claudia Bunge to the VAC. We had Paige Satchel signing for Canberra. Kendall Fletcher also returns to Canberra. But there was one real signing that we all care about. Angela, please. Michelle Hammond signed for Canberra. (laughs) (laughs) How good. I love it. Yeah, she's back. Um, Yeah, that was announced today. Um, Michelle Heyman uh, will be returning to the W League this season. I think Canberra is, you know, the the club we associate with Heyman. And it's, I don't know, I I don't want to speak for her, but it sort of feels like her home club. So it's, I think it's special and I'm really excited to see what she'll do this season after such a successful run in the NPLW Um, and in her presser today. She was just talking about having a break and coming back to football and enjoying it and um, I think that's great. She's always, when she's been on, she's such, yeah, going back to what we said last week about joyful players, it's just awesome to, to see that. So, yeah. Did Michelle have a camera? Yeah, no, it's really fun. I'm I'm really liking what Canberra are doing. I'm also really liking what Brisbane are doing because it sort of seems like they are understanding the direction in which the league is going. And what they're doing now is a sort of transition season where they're bringing back some veteran players who can help these younger players integrate and get them up to the standard that's expected of a professional club and professional players. Um, and sort of giving them the groundwork from which they can then springboard into being the future of the league and the future of the Matildas. So it's great having someone like Heyman coming back. She's got so much experience. And you're right, Angela, like she just seems to be, she has a different energy about it now, you know, sort of back towards the back end of her last season with Adelaide. You know, she was great there and that was a great season for them, but it just, she just didn't sort of seem like herself very much. And, you know, taking that time off, there are a number of players who have, uh, 
sort of spoken uh, in very positive terms about what taking a step back from professional sport can do for them. It can be a really positive move for them. I think there's so much to be said for some players having that time away from the game and coming back better than ever. Someone like Heyman would have been constantly pushing her body to get up for big tournaments and seasons and just always trying to prove her fitness. So sometimes just getting away can be the best thing. And I think you see it in the men's and women's games across different sports. And I love the idea of a rejuvenated Michelle Heyman who loves being back playing football and is just there because she wants to be, not because she's trying to push for one last national team or one last maybe championship or whatever. She wants to play for Canberra and it's a choice. Yeah, she's making of her own back and I think that's just so exciting and I think that can only be a good thing for the young players who are going to play with her and against her to see someone take so much joy in being back in the league because we talk about so many of the really serious things with the league um, but it is such a fun league like, and it's one that I think a lot of players really enjoy playing in. The Americans especially when they come over talk about how much they enjoy it and when you've got such figures in the game like Michelle Heyman I don't know, coming to the end of their careers, you want them to, I guess, finish on a high note. It doesn't necessarily have to be a championship, but to leave the game in a happy place. And I think that's fantastic. Even if she only plays one more season, awesome. And it makes Angela very happy, which is great for the pod. (laughs) Yep. But yes, so Heyman Watch now transitions from will she sign to how many goals will she score this season? Um. But that's dub news. Now let's move into some boots. We'll have some boots lined up. Harrow, would you like to give something a boot? I absolutely would love to give something the boot, Marissa. Um, this week, and as a member of the media, I hate seeing these sorts of failings. I think they're really avoidable. Um, seeing a lot of especially English and European publications, say with Cristiano Ronaldo scoring, he's now only second in the all-time international goal scoring list. He's not because that's men's football. It's like he's the – it's the sort of wording that's like Cristiano Ronaldo only has to score seven more goals to have scored more international goals than any other player. It's not true. Like it's it's off by a long way. Christine Sinclair has scored like – I think it's 79 more goals than Ronaldo. Abby Wambach scored 184 goals. Even players like Mia Hamm, Christine Lilly, Bridget Pins, um, Carly Lloyd. It looks like they have all scored more goals. Julie Fleeting, Marta, according to Wikipedia, all players that have scored more international goals than Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, it's not a hard thing to do to add men's into your tweet. It's what, like five more characters plus a space, six more characters to add into your tweet. Like it's not a hard thing to get right. It's not taking away from that player's achievements to to say he will soon become because it's it's pretty inevitable. He's probably going to become the all time leading men's international goal scorer. I just think you can get it right. You don't need to um erase the achievements of other people to celebrate someone else's. So Erasing the achievements of the likes of Christine Sinclair, Abby Wambach and a plethora of other women's footballers, that gets the boot from me. Angela, a boot? Yeah, um, mine is like, I don't know, a bit of a strange boot um, because the moment itself was quite validating. Um, Katie Wyatt wrote an article for The Athletic about being a women's athlete and 
playing on your period and basically just like competing while having a menstrual cycle. Um, and it's a long read and it, and I really enjoyed it. It goes in depth into a lot of different things and what different teams are doing. But one of the things touched on was white shorts. And I'd never thought about this in the professional context, but it's pointed out in the article that sorry, I'll just quote it here. Shockingly, shockingly, all bar three of the 13 clubs that have played in the WSL in the last few seasons have had white shorts as part of their home kits at some stage. Only Chelsea, Liverpool and Tottenham Hotspur are the exceptions. And for me, like basically for those who are missing the implication here, white shorts and playing on your period just don't go well together. It's not necessarily a logistic thing. It's more like a mental and emotional thing, which is discussed in this article and we'll share it. But yeah, I just, um, giving that the boot for the fact that so many, like they've still not been taken into consideration. It's just, again, copy and paste what the men are doing with no consideration for, you know, the fact that women are different and there are other things at play and they're not just tiny men as um, that, that quote is often brought out, but um, not tiny men, small men. Oh. You can say tiny. There are a lot of tiny men out there. Tiny men. Um, They're all tiny to you, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, basically, um, yeah, I can't even remember where I was going with that, but it was very validating for me um, to read about that because I've been in, like, social football situations. Like, I played for a mixed team once where um, the, the manager of the team, who, who was a man, picked the kit and I was like, white shorts, i white shorts and the other girls on the team are like white shorts white shorts um and so yeah it, it was validating to read about that but giving the boot to white shorts as a concept in um women's football a big old boot to that but let's switch it up let's do some how good Sam how good my how good this week, it was mentioned at the top of the episode, but I just want to give a shout out to Casey Stoney's wardrobe. Man, she is looking so schmick on that sideline. I'm loving the fact that she has a little esky that she sits on. Uh, she reclines against it sometimes. It has like a little pull-up uh, like uh, sort of handle thing that she can like lean back against and look super cool. She wears these amazing like fucking kick-ass boots, wears these big coats, just like colour-coordinated. She just looks absolutely fierce. So, yeah, like Casey Stoney like looking like a legend on the sideline. How good. You know what it is, Sam? It's like big AOC vibes. Ooh, like, yeah, yeah. Like just don't mess with her. Yeah. Like she's going to destroy you and she's going to look good doing it. How good. Absolutely. How good. Angela, how good? Yeah. Uh, this was um, sent in from the Zinsbergler on Twitter, but um, and we also were very happy to see it out in the wild as well that um, the Arsenal men's account were promoting the women's team this weekend and um, posting a lot about the Arsenal-Chelsea matchup. Um, it might seem like a little bit like the bar is so low, but it is. we should celebrate growth. And I think that they must have obviously seen the feedback um, when a couple of weeks ago they posted about no football being on while their women's team were playing. So that weekend. Um, so, yeah, really happy to for, for progress and recognition and hashtag growth. Um, and I hope they keep keep on doing that and it's not just a short-term thing. 
transitioning from a boot to a how good is very how good. And Anna, a how good from you? Yeah, this is a, a niche how good. Um, Tobin Heath posted on Instagram a photo of her celebrating her goal, no caption because she's very cool and doesn't need captions. You can do these things when you're a big dog. Um, but to bring her straight back down to earth, um, her one of the shorts on her left leg is actually lifted up a bit so you can see her quads. And let's be honest, they're pretty skinny. And her former, I think, PSG teammate, former France international, um, Laura Below actually noted this and commented, my lefty, where is your quadricep? Four <laughs> laughing face emojis. <laughs> so just bringing your gun ex-teammate slash friend back down to earth by ripping into their tiny quads. We've all been there. How good. How Good. And a final how good from me, there was, um, well, FFA are currently running a series of pieces called Generations of Australians and it's really lovely stuff. It's for both the Socceroos and the Matildas. Players are giving uh, influential uh, family members their jerseys and it's just the most beautiful stuff. So most recently we had uh, Chloe Legazzo gifting her nonna Gina a jersey and it was just the most beautiful video and as someone with a nonna, I was there watching this woman walk around her garden and start talking shit and talking about how Chloe likes the lasagna and the cannelloni. It was just, it was like watching my own grandmother. So it was just the most beautiful, like, four minutes. I sobbed like a baby, but that's more of a reflection on me than anything else. But um, it was just such a good video. So this piece of content and the whole kind of Generations of Australian series, it's so good how good so we'll definitely give that one a retweet because it was just so good to watch anyway I think that's enough from us that's been a a relatively big episode but um thanks for tuning in we hope you do it again next week make sure you do all the liking and reviewing and subscribing and everything else I say at this point in the podcast Uh, keep sending in questions and tagging us in things we're really loving what you guys have been sending on social media and stuff and Yeah, until then, we'll see you next week. So, bye.